All right, we're going to continue through our series on apologetics. And uh, the thing I want to focus on this morning, we're trying to move through the time outline that I published and sent to y'all a few weeks ago. The thing about apologetics and any other sort of um, theological topic is where to begin, how to proceed. It really is a lifelong pursuit. Um, And most of us, when we come to the study of apologetics, uh, want to learn how to destroy people with facts and logic. The problem is, um, when you approach apologetics that way, you may win arguments, and you can actually do that. But oftentimes, um, when it comes to winning and losing arguments, at least he's quiet. Uh, the problem with winning and losing arguments is you can win an argument and lose a person. Uh, and so you can win an argument and lose a person quite easily. Um, I think probably husbands have figured this out with their wives and vice versa. Um, kids, you can learn that lesson, Right. I had nephews. When I used to argue with them, they would say, well, I'm rubber and you are glue. Whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. I'm like, what? What is that? Or I know you are, but what am I? Which is the classic Pee Wee Herman rebuttal, if any of you are familiar with the Pee Wee Herman show. Anybody? That was an odd show. But that's what he used to say. I know you are, but what am I? Um, And we are entering into an age in which... It is easier to expose bad logic with just okay logic, but you're also exposing the illogic of individuals who are, when it comes to their commitment to truth, quite petulant. And so you can sit down and talk with someone and say, I've done it, I've contended for the faith, and that is good, and you've even done it righteously, biblically, and they look at you like you're crazy, right? And you've ever tried to look at a cow in the eyes and they just sort of stare back at you like they have no idea? Kind of like that. Um, And so when we look at the approach to apologetics, I want us to be very much aware, and I've said this already, um, faithfulness to the mission to contend for the truth is its own kind of faithfulness. And we only have so much time, we only have so many words, we only have so much energy, and I want us to sort of be cunning as to how we, as the title here is, spend our capital. Capital just means your resources, because you all, we all have very limited capital. So let's talk about this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move at what is called... um, a cheetah pace through these notes. Let's pray. Lord, bless our time together. Help us to be more faithful in our approach to and holding to the truth. May we not be afraid of this world, Lord. May we conquer in the name of Christ. All for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Now, before we enter into, well, not before, but one of the things we do need to understand as we're entering into the exercise of apologetics is where do we actually... What's the target? Where are we dropping our bombs? Uh, And so in any kind of military skirmish, if it's a hot war with real weapons, 
You have to strategize. Uh, I had a grandfather uh, who was a, bom a bomber pilot in World War II. He flew 36 missions out of southern Italy into the continent, and they would fly over the Italian Alps over into the continent, and they would bomb munitions factories. And the reason why they would bomb munitions, if you can imagine what those explosions were like, bomb munitions factories is because if you have no munitions, you cannot fight a war. Those were strategic, long-range bombing missions that were very, very dangerous. But the reward for a successful mission was you save the lives of soldiers on the ground and other men who are in the air. They were strategic bombing runs. Um, we, they, you know, the, the military had so many bombs, so many men, so many planes. Where do you spend those things? Have you ever played Risk or any of those other um, board games in which you have a limited number of moves, a limited number of men, a limited number of spaces? You have to strategize how you will play the game. We are limited. You and I are limited. We are limited in a number of ways, and we'll talk about those things in a moment. But before we do that, we need to talk about what is not limited, and that is the Word of God. Paul reminds Timothy of this when he writes to them, him and says, Though I am in chains, though I am bound, the Word of God is never bound. And so the Word of God is like a wild animal. Just let it loose to wreak havoc. And maybe if you don't like that metaphor, too bad. <laughs> this sort of violent metaphors appeal to my flesh in some way. Let it loose. It's a roaring lion. Let it loose. And oftentimes we go into apologetics and we use the ontological argument and the teleological argument and all of these sort of Thomistic philosophical arguments. And we do not engage with simply bringing the word of God to bear on the lives of individuals. Now, as it relates to the weapon, we know that the word comes from God. It does not come from man. And because it comes from God, it will accomplish his purposes. Just speak the word. Preach the word. Communicate the word. Proclaim the word. Use God's words. The word brings wisdom and understanding. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We ourselves are rooted and grounded in the word. This is why I emphasize in the past two lessons, we need to be in worship where the word is working on us. We need to be immersed in the wisdom and righteousness and understanding of God's word. And we arm that which is not bound. There's a better way to say that. You know, these are sort of like first-run notes oftentimes. Get the word out there and let the word do its job. Because the Holy Spirit, God has sent the Holy Spirit into the world. So we know what our weapon is. We know what the munitions are. And so we want to drop word bombs. We want to swing the word sword. Now let's look at the targets. Also as it relates to apologetics, we need to know who we're talking to. And we need to know the errors of an individual or the errors of the day. Now, in that book that I recommended, Gashmu Saith It by Doug Wilson, he talks about the predominant Western cultural errors. And he speaks of them as secularism, Darwinism, egalitarianism, the value-fat distinction, which is where Nancy Piercy, we've done a book study, Nancy Piercy, um, Love Thy Body, 
Relativism, subjectivism, and the tyranny of feelings. And then this, what he calls the admiration of the cool kids. Right? There are going to be a lot of pastors who are locked up. They're jammed up because they are very worried about their reputation. Or they want to be perceived as being cool. they got a book that they need to sell or those types of things. Now, let's look at those things quickly. Secularism is the idea that man's existence and his understanding of all things has nothing to do with revelation. We are material, and that is all we are. And that can lead to a whole host of problems, right? Darwinism is the cosmology of secularism. Cosmology just means a doctrine of creation or the beginning of all things. Darwinism holds that you and I are the product of however many years now. How many years are we up to? Billions? I'm sure we'll keep adding years, right? We just punt the football down the paths of the annals of history to get to the point where we just deny God. So we came from and go back to nothing. Egalitarianism is this idea of a zero-sum game. You see it especially with men's and women's relationships. This zero-sum game holds to the idea that if you get something, I get nothing. This is a very politically advantageous philosophy. And this is how we see right now people gaining power over fools. If they have something, you don't get it. I'm going to run to give that to you, and it creates division among people who are physically distinct from one another. Men and women, black and white, rich and poor, you get the point? The relationships between men and women and children in this country are the product of crass egalitarianism. If they get something that I don't get, that's not fair, and I want it. Well, the point that Wilson makes in his book, I didn't put it in the notes, is... If they get half the pie or three-quarters of the pie, that means I only get a quarter. And Wilson makes the point, in the world that God has made, the pie grows. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It actually grows. And so you have men like Bill Gates, these guys that are for population control. It's all part of secularism, Darwinism, and egalitarianism. Value-fact distinction. What is true or real And what is true for you are not always the same and don't actually have to be the same. Right? So let's say at some point when our country begins to draft for military conflict because nobody wants to be in the military right now for good reason. They're going to start drafting women. Well, guess what will happen as soon as that happens? Now there will be a difference between men and women again. Or... When you had politicians, male politicians, who are seeking to repeal Roe v. Wade, guess who didn't have an opinion all of a sudden? Guess who? Men. We're back to having men and women again. So there is this constant flip-flop between modernity and post-modernity, both philosophical systems that are not grounded upon God's word. So you can say science is science, but as a man, I can menstruate. Do you see One is real, one is real for me. And there is a constant conflict and this shifting of principles of what is true and not true. This is the world you live in. 
There is relativism, subjectivism, and the tyranny of feeling. This is just connected to the value-fact distinction. When there is no, when there are no facts, when emotions control things, how you feel, how you identify is your pervasive reality. Um, did you see the guy that went to the White House recently to get to interview President Biden? Did anybody of y'all see that? <laughs> Don't. Maybe adults, parents, because it's I couldn't watch it. I I I. I <laughs> well, I could. I only watched four minutes of it. I said I got to turn this garbage off. It's crazy, <laughs> because in before the interview, he's he who's dressed like a she is talking about how he's been real depressed lately, and really struggling. And it's it's like, well, no duh, you you are. You are on, and you, every day you wake up is an effort to reject reality. And I don't mean like the reality of age. I remember walking in one time and my dad was sort of checking out his love handles in the mirror. He's like, what's going on? I said, dad, you're just getting old. Like at some point gravity wins the battle, right? He, I would say that even if he was here and he would laugh, he, he probably would have already told you because that's just the way Fowlers operate. We share. And um, that's just it. What goes up must come down. And the only way in which you can pretend is to get other people to enter into that sort of delusion. And so we're seeing things now that are the full flowering of philosophical commitments that were held to 50 years ago, the free love movement of the 60s, 60 years ago, that have now become just all bets are off. And then, because many within the church want to sit at the cool kids' table, they don't say anything. They don't say anything. So you have men like J.D. Greer, who was at one point the president of the SBC, who said that at our church we practice pronoun hospitality. And pronoun hospitality means we don't think that a he should be a she, but because we don't want them to feel uncomfortable here, we will enter into their delusion with them to be hospitable. Right? It would be like you're at the the gas station, and there's this person that doesn't know diesel and petrol go to two different engines. And they say, will you help me pump my gas? And you go, okay, I don't want to offend them. And then three miles down the road, the engine seizes up. Okay, do you see the problem? We're living now in a culture that is seized up because you have people that have the cure for life's greatest problem, which is what? Sin. Not the Greg Glassman answer, which is chronic disease, although I like his language there. The greatest cure is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that process of sanctification. We need to know what the targets are. Now, the targets for me were different than the targets will be for my children. The same root sins, but a different kind of expression of that. And so what my children will face are greater challenges, but also greater opportunities. And my children's children will probably live in a culture of the ashes of that which has burned down, and they're going to help people pick their lives back up together. 
Um, in Florida recently, there was a group of people who had detransitioned, and they came and they spoke at a hearing in order to support the government not, well, outlawing basically hormone pills prior to 18. It should be an outlaw period, but it, this is something, I guess. And so you had all of these people come and say, this is a bad idea. Did you think that these kinds of conversations would have even happened, would be happening 40 years ago? Well, they're happening. And a lot of it is up to us to sort of be aware of the kinds of things that are being said and not go, like spend five years of your life going, I can't believe this is happening. Well, no, it's happening. It's happening. How do we then get to be part of the solution to that problem by communicating God's word? Now, many of us want to say, all right, well, we just need a better president. Well, I'm here to tell you. (laughs) I'm not sure that's going to happen for a long, 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 long time. And I know that we do need better rulers. We need to pray for them. God has told us to pray earnestly for them that we might have peace. But oftentimes, wow, excuse me, the solution that the church enters, the the sort of scheme that the church enters into is also the scheme the world enters into, or we think the world has entered into. Now, what the world has actually done is early in the 20th century with men like John Dewey and others, as they said, if we can get the kids, we can get the culture. And the church said, well, you can just have our kids then. And that's what we've done. We have given, as Vody Bauckham would say, we have given our children to Rome or to Caesar, and now we're surprised that they turn out to be Romans. The fight of the apologist is not predominantly the short, hot conversation you have with someone where you are throwing out the best stuff you have, logically speaking. It is the long game of being faithful in every area of life. So we look at the word, we look at the targets, and now we need to look at ourselves, knowing that we have limited capital. I want to talk first about skill and training. Now, concerning skill, let's just say this. We do not always have the same gifts. We are not born all the same. Some of us have sort of a... a, a bent either to memorize things and to spit those things out with some logical order. I'll give you an example. Um, In our ordination and licensure exams, uh, men will be examined for ministry, and they're going to get asked a lot of theological questions. There are kind of two types of answers. There is the rote catechism answer, which is okay, but then there is the I've chewed on the catechism answer, and now I'm spitting out what my impression of that answer is. And what that shows is not, hey, guess what? Good job, you can memorize a catechism. But you've thought about it. You've meditated on it. You've chewed on it. And what you're giving us is the doctrine in your words, which is what preaching is. Preaching is having something to say and knowing how to say it. Both of those are essential. Not all have the same skill. And so I don't want you to think for a moment that you're going to be the next Cornelius Van Til. You may be, but you're probably not going to be. I'm sorry to say it. 
right? Not all of you get to go to college. Some of you are going to have to dig ditches when it comes to apologetics. And that is okay. There are men and women who are structurally sound in the way that they can think, and there are times where I listen to them and it is astounding. In the same way that I get in the pool on Tuesdays and I can see people swimming next to me, I'm going, I know I'm doing what they're doing. Why are they swimming twice as fast as me? (laughs) Well, a lot of that is practice. Some of that is gift. So we don't all have the same raw material, which kind of flies in the face of the things that the world says, right? Everybody is the equity of outcome. That's bad. And not only do we not all have the same skill, but we don't all have the same training or opportunity to be trained. But we do know this. When Christ delivers the parable of the talents, the fives, the twos, and the ones, some of us are fives, some of us are twos, most of us are one. It is easy to begrudge the stinginess of God that we think is the stinginess of God and his providence. And we say, well, you know what? I'm just not going to do it. I don't like math. I'm not a math. Have y'all heard this? I'm not a math person. Well, maybe you're just not (laughs) MIT material, but you can balance a checkbook. And sometimes that's all you have to do. Especially when you live among people who can't even balance a checkbook. And when you look at the world around you, I want you to think this way. That the great philosophical PhD holders have less wisdom than children who who embrace the existence of God and they deny the existence of God. Out of the mouths of babes, right? God will establish his kingdom, his wisdom. And so it is not always what appears to be matching fire with fire. In the French and Indian War, you had these long lines of soldiers. And you know, like how they used to, they would march, they'd form a line, someone would say fire. And while they're loading and firing all at the same time, guess what would happen? An Indian would poke up behind a tree and go, shoot guy, go behind the tree. It was guerrilla warfare versus this old structure that was meant to go up against an army of like kind. So concerning skill and training... We are not all skilled in the same way, but we can, at some, on some level, take the raw material that God has given us and improve it. We do have that responsibility to not complain about our opportunities, our giftedness, our time, but to train. Now, how do you train yourself for battle? Right, Because the call to put on the full armor of God is for every Christian. We open the word, we read the word. And we read books that teach us how to do better. And if you don't understand it the first time, read it again. (laughs) And if you can't understand it at all, okay. But the things that the world gets wrong are very simple and fundamental. I mean, just look at the arguments that the world is making. Here's the argument, because I said so. I got, I know, I know I can dispute that argument. Because most of the people that live around you are as or less educated than you are. And I don't mean that as a slight at all. But most people do not have the time to devote to rigorous theological study. They're just common folk. 
And most of the ministry that you will do, most of the conversations that you have will be to ordinary, and I mean this in a good way, (laughs) ordinary people. Seminaries are weird, right? It's just a bunch of guys that just kind of, like it is the, it is the absolute absence of normality. <laughs> like no one talks in real life like guys talk at seminary when they get together, which is why oftentimes guys get out of seminary and they go, wait a second, I didn't pr- train for this. And people look at you and go, what are you doing, you big nerd? Like, what, can you make this relevant to me? And I remember my first internship at an OPC church and I was preaching to the session. I'm like, what am I doing? These aren't, I'm not auditioning. I'm not, you know, turning in an application and trying to get a good job. I need to preach to the people. So I started preaching to the normal people, which may or may not have gone over very well. I don't know. <laughs> so we do have limitations concerning skill and concerning training, but also time and attention. There's just so many hours in the day. I remember, and I may skip over my notes, I may go all over the place, but you have them in your hand. Um, When I was being trained by Campus Crusade to be an evangelist, one of the things I remember hearing someone say was, "If if you've never led someone to Christ, I'm not sure you can call yourself a Christian. Now, what they meant by that was initiatory evangelism where you go out and you, like, get the big game hunting, right? Like a 10-point buck. If you've never gone out and gotten someone, then I have a hard time believing that the Holy Spirit is in you. And I remember thinking, as soon as I heard that, well, what about my mom? Who raised three kids who grew up to fear God and love him. What about her? Now, this was part of, this was sort of the tail end of that pietistic movement where it was a kind of, a misapplication of biblical faithfulness. And what he was trying to do is say, you need to go out and win the lost, which is a good thing. But I will say this. When I lived in China and I was surrounded by unbelievers, literally everybody you ever meet in China is a communist, secularist, then it is very easy to share the gospel with someone who's never heard it. When you come back from China and go into pastoral ministry in America, guess what happens? 95% of your time is spent with people who are God-fearers. Are both of those ministries important? Absolutely. In fact, one of those ministries, I would argue, is less exciting. And I don't, again, it's like parenting, right? There's nothing really exciting about waking up every morning and I remember having a conversation with my wife. What are we going to do for breakfast? Well, we're going to have pork. You can either have sausage or bacon. <laughs> and it's the same thing every day. Every day I get up and I think, well, i got two options. <laughs> and usually it's one option because one of them is missing from the fridge because we've eaten that one. So faithfulness to the Lord in those situations is how do I, as a father, with limited time, limited opportunity, be a faithful apologist? Well, I will say this. If you can't persuade your children of the truth of the gospel, you have no business trying to do it with anyone else. You can't do it. 
You're not going to be able to do it. And if you don't want to do that for your children, you don't actually want to do it at all. Your desire isn't to win souls. It's to win arguments. And I'm using that example, but I want you to think of it not just as a real example, but also an illustration for how we ought to live in the church. Our first area of ministry when it comes to apologetics is to bolster the body by talking about things that matter for eternity. Right? I'm never going to convince Spencer Grigg to be a fan of the National Baseball League, ever. He doesn't think pitchers should swing at pitches, right? Correct. Correct. <laughs> so, as it relates to apologetics, I'm going to choose other areas. So right now, Spencer Grigg and I have been... Um, rucking on Friday nights, and he and I walk together, and Teresa and Carla walk together, and we talk about things that matter. And you know what? Every time we hang out and we talk about things that matter, I go back a bit. Obviously, my back is, Lord willing, getting stronger. My legs are getting stronger, but my mind and my heart have been nurtured. Much of apologetics that you take with you is just those little touches week after week day after day, month after month, wherein you contend for the truth in a way that you take every, like you take every thought captive, you take every moment captive. And the kinds of people that God is calling you to win are the kinds of people you're spending the most time with. They're just there. Right? It's like the saying, wherever you go, there you are. Thank you for that deep insight. Wherever you go, there you are. Wherever you go, and those people who are there. Now, the way you deal with the grass is greener on the other side problem is you thank the Lord for those opportunities. Lord, I'm going to have a pretty boring day today. I'm going to be at home. I'm going to vacuum. You can vacuum like an apologist, right? Not only do you vacuum straight lines, right? There are two different vacuum companies. There's Roomba and then there's Neat something. Roomba goes everywhere. Like it's this, if you were to trace it, it's this mess. One of them goes line by line by line by line, right? (laughs) One of those is better than the other. As you go about your day-to-day lives, you are showing the world how to organize your life well. Right? Right? And you do it by all the little things. So I'll give you maybe what is perhaps a very crass, and I don't mean the bad way example. um, One of my sons asked me the day, why why is it oftentimes that gay men have lisps? Have you ever wondered that question? Do you know why? I said, it's not by nature. What are they doing? They're saying something about themselves without saying something about themselves. It's like modesty. You can say something without saying something by the way you live, by the way you dress, by the way you say words. And there is a speech and a quality of life that a Christian possesses that says something without having to say something. Now, when I grew up, it was... You say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. You hold the door open for a lady. You, you treat your neighbor with respect, 
It is the idea of Christian hospitality. Isn't that not what chivalry is? It is laying a ground, a bet, and this isn't a sermon on, or a lesson on why you should be chivalrous, but you certainly cannot say, hey, believe this truth that is a life-consuming truth without a life that is not consumed by that truth. There will be, there will be hypocrisy. There will be uh, moments in which you fail, which is why you confess your sins to one another. And so there is always opportunity when you are willing to take opportunity by the way you structure your life. And so your training, your audience, your wealth, your ethnicity, your sex or gender, as the world says, I want you to see that that's what I meant by that word, none of those things are the main thing. You are not the sermon It is the word of God lived out in you that is the sermon. And so ultimately, your audience is what you make of them. How does a kindergarten teacher do this? Right? As it relates to your circumstances, someone who works every day as a kindergarten teacher, are they saying, now, right, children, we're all going to stand up and we're going to memorize... Thomas Aquinas' ontological argument for the existence of God. Yay, teacher, this is great. But you say, why does the sun rise? Why does the sun, why do the sun and moon always seem to follow the same course? Why does B always follow A? Why is two plus two always four? You build a life that is grounded upon the, now this is a not so fancy, but maybe. A priori principle, that means the foundational principle, it's Latin, that which comes before everything else. The a priori principle, not only that the word of God is true, but there is a God who made you, and he made you for himself. And that conversation with Jordan Peterson is going to be very different than that conversation with your toddler at home who can't yet go to the bathroom by themselves. You know what I mean? And God is calling you to be able to talk to both of those people somehow. And the, the initial way you do that is you live a life worthy of emulation. Paul says what? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And everyone has that time. So if mom and dad have chores to do, and they complain about doing those chores, guess what kind of kids they're raising? People that don't like chores, that don't see the point of them. Or you complain about going to church, or you don't go to church. Or you you have bad language. Whatever that may be. Our first audience is always those people who are either at your ankles or right next door. And in some ways, God gives to us, especially in a church like this, opportunity to see what actually wins people. So every Sunday morning... There are a few of these kids that come up to me after church, and they always come up to me, Mr. Fowler, and they want to talk about what the week was like. And so I listen to whatever happened. It takes a minute, right? It's, this is moving faster than this. And so their mouth, their brain, you know, it's, it can be fun. I have to be able to relate to them and talk with them, not like they are someone I have to talk to to get to the adults, but as the most important person in that room for just a little while. And if I've done that then guess what will happen when they're older? By God's grace. 
they'll still come to me and talk to me. And I can talk to them. There is a way in which you can win the trust, maybe not the admiration, because that's oftentimes what we're looking for. The trust of the world, of your neighbors, simply by entering into normal human fellowship with them. This past week in apologetics, I was talking to the young people about the role of hospitality in apologetics. And you can do that. It's not something your mom and dad do. right? Your mom and dad should be doing that, opening their home, preparing food, all of that stuff. But it is also something that we can do. Like, let's go get a milkshake together. Let's go get a burger, whatever it may be. And just share your life. Sometimes you don't talk at all. Sometimes you just hang. Is that what they say? What do kids say these days? Chill? I don't know. You know what I mean. Hang out is what we said when I was younger. And there's always something. There's always an opportunity to do that. I think oftentimes, though, we don't take those opportunities because we don't always like the people that God has in his providence led to us. One of the ways that manifests itself in the church quickly is whenever you're planning a church, like you're, you're, you're sort of planning a church like you recruit for a football team. You only want the five-star recruits. You want the team that will beat all the teams on the playground. And you tend to overlook the scrubs. And in Reformed churches, there are two types of scrubs. Um, those who are not thoroughly Reformed, right? Those who dress a little differently, right? And those who just may come to church dirty. You know what I mean? Like, did you shower today? And we look down our noses at them and go, don't you know what kind of church this is? <laughs> Were you hiccuping? Okay. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> we often do that just in the way we interact with people. And we turn our noses up at them and we say, nah, I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know. Um, and what we're doing in those moments when God is saying in some way, in terms of providence, hey, here you go, here's your shot. You say, no, nah, I don't think it's worth it. I'm going to wait till somebody better comes along or more attractive or someone that may actually, right? When Christ says, when you give, give to the poor. Why? Because they can't give back. True religion is what? Widows and orphans. Why? Because they can't pay you back. That is selfless faith, selfless religion. And so oftentimes we miss those opportunities ultimately because we're not practicing apologetics for the good of another. We're doing it because, like the bomber pilots or the fighter pilots, one more notch on the cowl, right? One more guy down. <laughs> you may never get any. Noah got none. Noah never won one person in his ministry building the ark and proclaiming Christ's judgment upon the nations. And so ultimately, as it relates to our faithfulness, we need to get the word out there, we need to understand our limitations, and we need to be faithful in the little things. Any questions? I know we need to go. This is almost not enough time. No, it's not almost not enough time. It isn't enough time. Any questions? So um, what is connected to this, I think, as we are looking at this, we've got a few more lessons to go. 
um, is we want to continue to do some sort of Christian education on top of the Lord's Day worship. Uh, one of the things we'd probably like to go to next, and we're going to talk about this as a session, and we'd love to have some input, is what does it look like to establish and nurture a godly home? Because these two subjects are very tightly connected. Uh, and so um, that will probably be where we end up going next. Um, we don't want to be pie-in-the-sky apologists. So get your hands dirty. Just go out and do it. Don't say, well, we have five more lessons. You're not going to, in, in five more lessons, become a proficient apologist. Right? I, I can watch a lot of golfing videos and have no idea how to swing a club. I have no idea how to swing a club. And no amount of watching golf videos is going to teach me. What do I have to do? I have to go hit some balls. So um, get out there and do it. And if you've done it, tell somebody about it. and Talk to them and revel in the joy of either, well, you probably get turned down, frankly. <laughs> I mean, that happens a lot. But revel in it anyway. All right, any questions, any comments?